0: You don't just get what people buy, you get to look in their baskets, you get to look at who they are, what they're wearing, what questions they're asking, you know, it's that, who, is it? who are these people? Who are these people? Brand Growth Heroes is the business
1: podcast for the founders of food, beverage, and other consumer goods brands, and is ranked in the top 1.5% of all podcasts worldwide. Here, our guests talk not only about their brand purpose or why, but also how where they play, who they employ, and how they work has driven their incredible success. In this episode, I speak to founder Camilla Barnard about the much-loved brand Rude Health. You'll find out how she grew their delicious alternative milk and cereals business to twenty million in sales across four countries over the past eighteen years. We talk a lot about brand and packaging, as well as the importance of knowing the right questions to ask consumers, shoppers, and even your buyers. We also cover complete category pivots, the challenges of winning that last tail end of distribution in a competitive market like alternative milk, and how to hire individuals with the right fit and skills for your business. Camilla Barnard of Rude Health, welcome to Brand Great Heroes. How are you doing? I hear you're just back from your holidays.
0: I am doing really well, just back from the holidays. Uh, yes. Where were yeah. you, if you so don't I mind, mind me asking? asking? I, I was in um, sort of North Devon Cornwall area, which was a mixture of extremely blustery. So the top of my campground blew off um, uh, and I learned new skills with uh, duct tape and bin bags um, and very sunny. So it was great fun. It was really good fun. So look, it's brilliant to have you on the show and we always
1: do this, but for our listeners who don't know what Rude Health is, will you give us an overview of the categories that you play in, the products you have and what the brand looks like?
0: Sure. So Rude Health, as you can tell from the name, the idea is it's a health food brand um, and we play in a number of categories. Key one is alternative milks, um, also uh, breakfast cereals and snacks. Um, we're available all over the world, but probably I'd say four major countries. We've got 65 SKUs in total, although that does go up and down. We're always launching new things. Um and yeah UK it's sort of all the malts and uh, independence farm shops it's every it's everything you'd expect um, what were the other questions so <laughs> the reason i wanted to get you on the show
1: was i started my challenger brand journey at the very end of 2006 when i joined goo from nestle uk where i'd been working on how to step change their growth and as as part of that work we were looking at all of these up and coming brands and you launched your brand when 2006. 2006. And that was really, you know, this year in Nestle where we were looking at all of these brands that were up and coming and doing things so differently to the way we did things. And one of those brands was you. And I've been following your progress ever since. And you're really one of the only brands from that era that made it through the 2008 financial crisis.
0: And now you have a turnover of what, 20 million? Yep. Yep. Just over 20 million. Exactly. Yeah. In four countries and what, 35 people? 35, 35 people roughly, yep, including the cafe and our little Netherlands office. And you've managed to remain in the majority privately owned with a small chunk owned by Pepsi? Yep, exactly, so majority owned by myself and um, Nick still and then friends, family and Pepsi. I mean, how have you done
1: that? It's, it's an incredible feat to have brought a business to that level of success without having taken extensive external funding or, or without having failed.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. no, it, it, I mean, looking back on it, it is it is quite amazing i mean what the funny thing is as i'm sure you know and anyone else who's involved what you 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 tend to see what you haven't done or you tend to see the people who are going you know bigger faster better so it's actually it's quite hard to kind of look back and acknowledge what you know what what you have achieved i find it quite difficult to acknowledge what we have achieved but having said that you know when we launched in 2006 at the kitchen table you know with our one recipe for the ultimate muesli um I would not have believed it if you'd said this was where we'd be, you know, whatever it is now, 18, almost 18, 17, 18 years later.
1: So that wasn't what you were planning when you started this at the kitchen
0: table then? Not really, because, I mean, as you, you know, what, the, going back to your question about, you know, sort of how, the the goal was huge, but the route to it was so vague, I can't tell you, because I'm not really a business, business person at heart. Um, so the goal was to... Um, help more people to be in rude health you know it was a sort of massive aim you know the purpose of rude health as we say now is to make healthy eating a celebration not a sacrifice because in this country certainly in the uk um there's very much a split between uh feeling that health healthy food's what you ought to eat but you're not going to enjoy it and junk food's what you want to eat and it isn't going to do you any good and i don't think that's the case so the, our dream was to sort of you know nudge people along into enjoying healthy food more huge dream um and there was no sort of huge business plan. The business plan was, well, let's start with the healthiest of healthy foods, muesli, doesn't get much healthier than a muesli, um, and see if we can make a delicious muesli. And, and then that was it. And we just did it. So rather than, um, yeah, we just did it, I suppose. So that was the plan. Do it. Let's see if we can do it. And then everything was incremental. So when you were thinking yeah. about
1: doing it, were you actually thinking about building such a big company?
0: I I think subconsciously there was, but I do remember it was a couple of years after we started when when I think we were approached by a supermarket and we didn't know whether we wanted to go into supermarkets or not. And somebody said to us, do you realise that 96% of cereals are sold in the supermarket? And we said, "Uh, no, (laughs) (laughs) hadn't hadn't realised that. And at that point, we realised that we didn't want to be talking to only the 4% that weren't shopping in the supermarket and that but we hadn't actually consciously considered it until that point it was only when it kind of you know hit us in the face that it was like well if you do want to be talking if you do actually want to make a difference you are going to have to play in the sort of bigger wider world so it was I mean, honestly it was I think it, we're almost sort of living proof that you you don't have to know what you're doing you've just got to keep learning a lot fast all the time
1: Quick one. I'm thrilled to share that Strong Roots is continuing their support of brand growth heroes for another season. Finding quick and easy meal solutions that are also better for you can be a real challenge for busy families like mine. That's where Strong Roots comes in for us. Their veg-packed frozen foods make it incredibly easy to enjoy delicious plant-based meals that everyone in my family loves, whilst doing a little good for the planet too. We love their sweet potato fries, crispy cauliflower hash browns and yummy spinach bites. Honestly, their products are a lifesaver for us on busy weeknights. What's even more important, though, is that Strong Roots is committed to using clean ingredients that are better for you and better for the planet. They're actually one of the pioneers in terms of having their carbon cloud on the front of pack for full transparency of their impact on the planet. And as a B Corp, they're committed to improving this number, as well as all the ways they do business. I've been fortunate enough to work with Strong Roots since 2016, and I'm proud to support a company that's always striving to do better. So head to the freezer aisle and try Strong Roots for yourself. Don't forget to look at their ingredients on the back of pack. I think you'll be as surprised as I was at just how clean, tasty, frozen food can actually be. Thanks to the team at Strong Roots for their continued support this season. Good for you. Good for the planet. Good made easy. This is great because I'm imagining some of our listeners who have just started their own businesses or maybe are a few years in or thinking of leaving their big jobs to go and launch their consumer packaged goods brand. And they're thinking, do I need to know how to do all of this? I mean, how much of this? And when I, when I say this, I'm thinking particularly of great product development, great product launching and great packaging and marketing and branding, because those are the things that really stand out for me about your product's just to say to listeners, if, if you haven't seen what Rude Health looks like, go and Google them quickly because they are known in the UK and in Portugal and Benelux for their really incredibly bright branding uh, in the categories that they're in. So, so how much of this did you know about? How much of this did you know how to do and how much of it did you need to learn to do?
0: Oh, I mean, really, I mean, close to nothing, frankly. Neither myself nor um, my ex-husband, Nick, who, you know, we did it, we've done it all together. Um, neither of us had ever dealt with stuff before. Um, it had all been yeah, abstract. You know, we'd never had, we'd never made something and sold that thing. So it was hugely new. And I'd done a bit of marketing, but um, nothing very, you know, nothing very much. Um, and he'd mostly done books and publishing. So we, you know, if in terms of if you looked at us on paper, were we qualified? The answer was no, uh, absolutely not, <laughs> definitely not. So I'd say categorically, no, you don't need to know everything. I almost wonder if we'd known more, would it have held us back from doing it at all? Would it have held us back from being, uh, I, I mean, original, uh, you know, in a sense of I think if, the more you know, the more you're going to be inclined to do, Is generally done whereas we didn't even know what was generally done so we just did what we wanted to do Um, and then sometimes that turns out to be completely impossible and then you adapt but it at least means it's a sort of pure vision that you're you're taking I mean what what we started with was you know the dream we knew what we wanted to achieve you know we knew we wanted more people to be in rude health and we thought that the route to do that was to make healthy food more delicious um, and more appealing and then it's been a massive journey the last 17 years of get, getting there
1: of working out how to actually do that yeah so the first yep. point of the journey so you're at the kitchen table I presume tell
0: us you're mixing mixing music at the kitchen table with two tiny tiny children it was organic you can't actually sell it if you mix it at the kitchen table So the first thing we had to do because you need an organically certified kitchen so uh first thing we had to do was we found you know friends of friends uh a an organic cafe that was daytime only. So then we could go and mix there in the evenings. I mean, clearly that is a short term uh, plan. That's not going to work well. Uh, so the minute, and then we would take it, we'd, what did we We put 4,000 pounds in to start the business with. And that bought us the ingredients, the tubs to put the muesli in, tubs because we wanted it was clear, we wanted to be able to see it. It brought us labels um, and it brought us branded aprons. Um, and we took it to local delis and um, it's, I hand sold it and the hand delivered it. And yeah.
1: So up until this point, it's basically 100,000 different kitchen table business success stories. You're bringing it to delis, you're bringing it to markets, you're giving it to your friends and yep. families, you're mixing it up yourselves. Was there a point soon after that where you knew that something was going that where you knew that the business was going to work or did it take a while to get traction?
0: I would say it was two years, roughly. So 2006 to 2008 of what I would now look back and say was sort of live research, um, in a sense, because we were, you know, every everything we tried to do, you know, came back with something that was a learning. So, um, you know, we wanted to sell to Riverford. Which is a great veg box scheme. Um, love what they do. And they said, you know, would love would love to take it, but the, you know, the, the price of the ultimate muesli doesn't really fit. Um, and at the same time, um, Fresh and Wild, which is now Whole Foods, had come back and said, you know, great, but you need more than one food and um, you need a distributor. So it all and we were like, okay, so we're gonna to have to make more mueslies then, you know, and it every single thing we learned sort of developed it and developed it. So for the first couple of years, it was just jumping through the hoops of getting the business off the ground, but guided by doing it in real life. Rather than doing it on a paper plan, it was guided by what actually people wanted, what what was asked for, and doing the tastings. I mean, the, those aprons were so we'd go into the stores and hand sell the stuff. And of, yes, it's sales. Obviously, when you do tastings, people buy. But it's, it's. I mean, it was my favourite thing to do. It's incredible research. Because you don't only get, I mean, this is where the marketing, you know, this is what I love, is um, you don't just get, what people buy you get to look in their baskets you get to look at who they are what they're wearing what questions they're asking you know it's that who is who are these people who are these people and you can learn so much you know who's even shopping in these stores yeah so um yeah incredible learning for a couple of years which was uh, that was the point where we went actually we need if we want to make it's got legs but if we want to make it go we need to now properly totally focus on it and stop playing. So would you say that the first two years was basically what we call today
1: a beta launch?
0: Yes I think yeah you probably would yeah probably would now yeah. You think
1: it's a real launch at the time you're doing it but actually you know it's about learning uh, and as long as you can iterate and I mean it seems to me that you were a business at that point that could just quickly change on its feet, react, ask the right questions because that's something we were talking about earlier isn't it? The power of asking the right questions is just so important.
0: And even even just hearing, because quite often, I mean, one of the difficulties is not knowing the right questions, isn't it? You don't even know what they are. But it's just every time you get something comes, whether it's from a consumer or a shop or, you know, anybody, it's just whatever comes in, it's kind of does that, do I need to listen to that? Does that fit? Do we move? Do we change? Do we adapt? Or do we go, no, that's not our thing? But it, and it's constant, absolutely constant, so intense. I had a founder's coaching this
1: morning with a client and the client was saying, you know, by the by, the buyer that I was talking to yesterday was slightly concerned. Uh, They were slightly concerned that this particular product and brand that they were putting forward wouldn't be understood in the fixture that it was in. And then we kept on talking and the client went on talking even. And I was like, hang on, hang on a second, backtrack. What did the buyer say again? And they said, oh, well, just that they were slightly concerned that this particular product wouldn't be understood in the impulse fixture. Fixture. And then they continued talking again. I said, no, 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 we, we need to stop here. And we really need to understand what the buyer means because they're telling you something massive here. And what I was trying to do was give them this idea that this needs to be a huge big question mark over their, over their head or a big red flag. Every time you hear a buyer or a consumer say they don't understand something or that they have a concern, you need to be kind of like dig, dig, dig and ask why, 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 why? So you walk away from that meaning Sorry, so you walk away from that meeting knowing way more than you even knew that you needed to
0: know before you went in. Exactly. It's the question you, it's the answer to the question you didn't even ask.
1: Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Yeah. But it takes years, doesn't it? Years of experience in these meetings and uh, years of experience talking to consumers to have that template of questions to ask in your head. And and I suppose I was really lucky early on because I was taught by some fabulous bosses, including James Aberdeek of Goo and the Coconut Collaborative, you know, that you have to say, Okay, that's really interesting that you've said that and and can I ask why? Why are you thinking that? And what do you mean when you said that? And then you just walk away going, crikey. And now I do it with everything. But if no one had ever taught me to do that, I wouldn't have done it. I just would have slid over whatever the person had, had said without really
0: recognising that it was so important. I, I actually, that is probably sort of what I do. I, um, I'm huge on why and motivation and what's behind stuff and why and... In a way, it was, I mean, God, it made my childhood so difficult because you don't have much agency as a kid. So nobody really wants you to be um, questioning whether what you've been asked to do actually makes any sense. And there might actually be a better way of doing it because it just looks cheeky. (laughs) But that's B, that is probably my. It wasn't so much what actually what happened was I got massively demotivated because you know the thing that I do the thing that I'm good at which is to look at, I don't want to just answer the question I want I mean I'll, I'll be the one going I don't even know why you're asking this question this isn't a very interesting question can we go and look over there because I think it's much more interesting over there and of course no teacher wants that because they've got a syllabus to teach um, and it doesn't matter whether I was right or wrong uh, nobody was it, it, I just got I got shut down um, so I shut down. I just shut down. And, and, I, I, and I couldn't. It was only doing Brood Health that I found. It's almost like finding my creativity because I'm not good with my hands. And I've always felt that, you know, creative, I sort of assumed creativity was through your hands, you know, painting or whatever. Um, but actually creating a brand I found was my sort of creative, is my creative outlet. I love it because you've got to understand, you've got to, you know, it was my dream. It was what I wanted to do was make healthy food more exciting or more you know more appealing but it was like how do I make that work for other people what is going on like you're saying what is going on in other people's heads and what are they thinking what do they want and that's the bit I love.
1: So what conclusions did you come to because obviously your brand and your product range and your packaging is the embodiment of those conclusions right after all of the questions that you've asked over the last 17 years right? Because as I understand it, you originally had a different packaging ident- brand identity and then you moved into this really bright, colourful packaging and cereal. And what did you understood about what people wanted that made you do this rebrand?
0: It, well, I'll tell you what happened. It, was, it actually didn't happen until 2013, so quite a long, seven years after we started the business. Um, and it was, it was triggered simply by, so it wasn't any particular genius on our part, it was triggered by um, our designer, current packaging designer um, getting a full-time job and not being able to design for us anymore. And I didn't want to just say to a new designer, uh, can you do us some new packaging, please? Can you just make it a bit better than the old packaging? <laughs> Worst brief ever. <laughs> so um, I wanted to do some sort of uh, brief, but you know, with some input. Anyway, we were really lucky. Our copywriter at the time... Freelance at an agency, they did co-creative workshops um, and, you know, marketing jargon, but effect and they needed BBC Radio 4 wanted to do a program on it. So anyway, we've got a complete bargain basement opportunity to get some extreme consumers involved in what did you know how did they think of us what did they think of us this is what I wanted. you know this is what I wanted to know is like what does it what does it look like what what does it make you think of who does it appeal to And what's it not doing what is it doing so that we could then kind of work out what do we need to do anyway what came out of that was really the idea that the you know the energy of the ideas behind the brand were were bold and strong and, uh, you, know, and uh, you know, and bright. It was like the brand that wanted to light up the room. But currently we were in packaging that was very typically, at the time, very typically health food. You know, it was, it was um, you know, that craft paper, nice and brown and green, you know, so it gave all the health food cues. And what came out of it was uh, th- that, that's just doubling down on health. You've got rude health in the name and to have the packaging look healthy as well you're relying on tasting the food to get the sense of you know deliciousness and lifestyle and celebration and you're not going to taste the food unless you've already bought it so it was it was like pulling the whole thing back and and realizing that we just we weren't getting people at the wanting to pick it up stage we were assuming they'd already picked it up would then taste it and say it was delicious so it was it was moving the decision tree whatever you want to call it forward so that they'd see the pack so you were realising that the friction for you guys
1: as a business was to make your consumers change their behaviour earlier on in the consumer journey.
0: Exactly. So you want the people who wouldn't have been attracted to a health food to, to pick up the health food. And I mean, even, even then, so we knew we wanted to do that. And even then, our des- we've got fantastic designers. We've, we've found brilliant designers. Um, and in a huge huge hurry this is how things always happen we had a listing waitrose had given us a listing for our new to be launched dairy-free drinks um and the first designers that we picked it it didn't work out and i we found these other designers but by this time we were so up against it i can't even tell you you know we we met them and at the end of the meeting you know they asked are are you speaking to anyone else and we went no (laughs) you know sort of like Please don't charge us a fortune. And, it's, and then they asked, you know, what's the timeline? And it was something s- extraordinary. Like, it, I think it was eight weeks. Eight weeks that we needed to go to Prince from not having a concept. I mean, it was ridiculous. Um, you know, and it's just going, eight weeks, please don't walk away. Um, and they didn't walk away and they, you know, didn't sort of use, use you know, they had us over a sober barrel. They didn't use that. They could see the long-term um, opportunity. Anyway. Apparently, the only stipulation that we gave them was don't lose the craft brown bag. I don't remember saying that now. Uh, Nick doesn't remember saying that now, but apparently we said it anyway. They very wisely completely ignored us um, and just went full on on the colour. And when they took us through the designs, honestly, I could not have been more excited. I think that that packaging, when we did that packaging, that for me was almost the highlight of the whole thing, because it was when when we saw what they'd come up with and how they'd managed to embody everything that was like, it was everything in my head, they'd converted into a look. And I have, it was just the most exciting thing ever. Um, Yeah, it was Oh it's absolutely extraordinary It's like wow you have you've got inside my head and got something out there that I could never have done Which is what a great brand designer does and it can cost you a very
1: small amount of money or it can cost you up to seventy thousand I hear these days um, but making sure that your brand designer is really talented in working out what you need and how to make that happen uh, on shelf is just incredibly important
0: yeah it doesn't it doesn't need to be a fortune I think it's the 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 tricky thing is I always think the hardest thing is the brief because you've, in order for them to create the picture, you've got to, you've got to have given them all the pieces of that picture that they put it together. You know, if you think, I mean, I don't know if a jigsaw puzzle is a very good analogy, but without all the pieces, they can't turn it into a picture. So if you just say, make it better or make it a bit like this, there's no, there's nothing in that. There's no vision in that. There's no overall concept.
1: And at the time, your packaging was conforming to the norms of the little competitive arena that you were playing in, right? Exactly.
0: And that was just you and Dorset Cereals at the time, I think? By that time, there were, when we started, there were an absolute host of small um, brands. Yeah, It was all very recessive. It was all very health food shop. You would expect to see us in a health food shop. And this is a really important question, isn't it? And We
1: spend a lot of time talking about this, or at least I do with, with clients and with my alumni group. And the question is, you know, how do you... Difference, you say, differentiate yourself from other brands in your categories, yet still hang on to the cues that allow shoppers and consumers to know what you're for and how to uh, use you. And, you know, brands use their clothing, so to speak, to do that, to show shoppers and consumers what they're for and how to use them. But yet you want those clothing to allow
0: you to stand out. and, And how do you find the happy balance between those two things? exactly and it can be as simple as a color it can be a format one of my favorites was um not for the food but for the what they did was the belvita which was putting a telling was selling a selling you breakfast as a biscuit i mean conceptually i'm not sure i'm all over that but anyway what they did that was genius was i thought was so clever was biscuits in the uk are sold in packets that sit horizontally they sit you know low and wide on the shelf and belvita actually turned it round and sat vertically in the shelf which actually has a nod to cereals which sit vertically in the shelf so it still sat very well in the shelf but it did look slightly different and it's that i loved i thought that was a really good example of what you're. It it is about. a
1: really good example actually when i'm going to use and and what it also does is it creates an anchor in the consumer's brain you know we've all got mental maps of 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 categories and and anything that stands up straight like that and looks breakfasty makes you think of a cereal box, doesn't it? So if you're in the biscuit aisle, but you're standy-uppy and looking like a cereal box, then consumer's anchor is, well, something that looks like that must be to do with breakfast. And it's really clever, you know, the packaging is doing the work. I don't need to shout and say that it's for breakfast because it's obvious to me that it is a, a, breakfast, um, a breakfast item because it stands up and looks like, like cereal boxes
0: without having to explain it, because that's always when you know you've gone wrong. You can't say delicious on a box. You know, you did, nobody, wants to, nobody wants to read a box. You've got to have so few messages on there. It's one of the hardest things, and we keep failing at it. We keep chucking far too many on and then cleaning it up again, because um, fundamentally, nobody wants to read it. You want to look at it and think, yum, or wow, or whatever it is you, you do. You're meant to be thinking about that food. And look, we can bring this back to the big
1: marketing strategy question, which is, who do you want to change? And what change do you want them to make?
0: It it was anybody who wasn't really enjoying eating, you know, wasn't really enjoying good food. I think oh, I mean, How did It was it was sitting down and being excited by food that you didn't think you were gonna be excited by. And so so that's how
1: wearing the clothes of those big, bright colours and coming across as this big, rude health brand, in a way, allowed you to show up as a brand. And that's a really big question as well that I always ask, you know, is how is your brand going to show up? I was listening to you um, earlier in the week on another podcast and you were talking about really eloquently about how you knew exactly what your marketing strategy was going to be and how you knew you were going to have to embody that in absolutely
0: everything you did. And that's what your packaging did, right? Exactly. And, and of course, and that's in the name because we've got this gift of a name, rude health, which actually means something. I mean, it doesn't matter if people don't understand it because the words themselves have a good, strong um, contrast, actually, quite provocative. But it, What about in foreign languages? Yeah. The, it, well, I mean, people still know health and they still kind of know rude. So it's fine. You know, and it does give the right sense. But it is actually an old English expression, meaning, you know, full of energy and up for life. And that is the point of rude health is to be in rude health.
1: So we've kind of digressed, but that's cool because this is all brilliant stuff. So you're on this journey trying to understand what consumers wanted and then try to make sense of that in terms of what marketing you needed to do to get those consumers to change, to come and,
0: and buy your brand. Oh my God! Do you know, still the most difficult thing in marketing for me uh, is scaling it, doing what we really want to do at scale. Um, what is the oh so initially the most important thing for us was because because what we'd understood as the issue was that people don't want to eat healthy food the what our challenge was to get it in people's mouths and get them to try it so tastings was the big thing but actually they're really hard to scale and in any way that is remotely kind of personal and interactive you can but it's pretty miserable um and and also keeping the attitude you know keeping the sense of being in rude health uh, and as we've grown we've gone through lots of ways of communicating the brand some of which are completely not commercial I mean one of the ones that we started we did for a long time which I, I still love was the ranting which actually was just started by Nick you know who who rants um, and someone said you should put this online so, we did, you know, it was rants about food and it was food principles. And someone else then asked if they could rant, so it's someone else in food. And we're like, this is really fun. And we then turned it into a kind of roving foodie speaker's corner um, that was the Rude Health Rants, which is all about attitude to food. And I have tended to uh, market using attitude to food rather than a more commercial um, sort of sales approach, which I think, you know, in the startup days was absolutely brilliant and it got really. Uh, deeply engaged consumers who understood the why of what we were doing, uh, and that we were absolutely kind of hearts in. Um, but I think once you, you know, once you get to the, the the size we are now, you do also need to act at scale. So we are, you know, we have now done sort of one above the line campaign, um, you know, and we'll look at more, and you know, are looking at more traditional ways of just getting out to more people without, hopefully, without losing. Um, our personality.
1: And what role does online uh, play in terms of comms, whether that's paid or unpaid? What does that account for in terms of your marketing jobs to be done uh, in terms of time and resources and money? It's
0: actually gone down enormously. It used to be in the old day, when we were starting up, it was PR and online was pretty much all we did in terms of spend. Um, And we have reduced and reduced and reduced the online. I think because uh, i mean you, I, this is no got not gospel at all um but for us we've found it is a more uh, sort of sales driving and it's not what we necessarily what we're trying to do and the recruitment is quite expensive to recruit consumers uh, there's a huge fight now with the algorithms it just costs more and more and more so we're not doing um currently not focusing at all on online and we would now uh use i mean we do we do our you know owned channels but we're not really doing paid at the moment we will use it and we would use it to support something else that we're doing but it's the secondary now i mean i'm amazed i can't quite believe it a few years ago it was the it was the first thing we thought of and
1: so this brings me to the channels that you play in. So really, you're quite different to a lot of the newer businesses that we see nowadays that start up with a direct-to-consumer model and then go into the independents and then into Whole Foods, Planet Organics, and then Ocado, Sainsbury's, et cetera, et cetera. But you um,
0: have always been are, and still are almost entirely in retail, right? Yeah, re- hugely retail. In fact, we closed our web shop uh, this year, but which we always had a webshop since we started. Okay, so this this just does not suit me as a mother,
1: right? Because can I do some Irish ranting here, right? Yeah. Because we are a really <laughs> heavy cereal user family and which is desperate because you shouldn't be and all the rest of and the rest of it, but we are and we've got three kids and each of those children likes a different cereal. And crikey after the year I've had, if it's not just easier to buy them all a feckin' cereal.
0: Absolutely, absolutely.
1: There are some battles that are just not
0: worth fighting, yeah.
1: And so a great advertising CEO back in Ireland, who ran one of the big advertising agencies over there, explained to me a long time ago that lots of families, jam consumers and cereal consumers are actually portfolio category consumers. And they'll always have more than one jam, you know, in their cupboard. So you can't just expect a family to buy one jam. They'll have seven or eight jars of spreads and we're portfolio yoghurt consumers and I talk about this often on the show but we're also portfolio cereal users and I would say in our cupboard there are or as in our press as we like to call it back home in Ireland we have about eight different cereals now they're all low sugar and there's no frosties or anything like that but there's shreddies and there's cornflakes and there's rice krispies and there's weetabix there's always a muesli or a burker muesli or a granola and thanks to your lovely Martha I now have a stock full of root health excellent Thank you, Martha. Yeah, thank you very much, <laughs> Martha. But look, what I've recently started doing is because the kids are clamoring so much for the sweet cereals and it's driving me nuts is that I've gone onto Amazon and found two cereal brands that make uh, kid friendly, but very, very low sugar, very, very, not very sweet cereals. And I've started buying them in bulk Um Unfortunately, they're not available locally, so I can't buy them locally because I do always try and shop local. But I will buy four to six boxes of this very low sugar cereal, like Alpha Bites, for example, and I'll get it delivered to the house um, and it becomes something that I get on subscription.
0: So, like, why wouldn't that be a brilliant thing for you guys? Well, we decided in the end at Amazon sadly they're going to do it better than us so it is available on amazon but not through our web shop i mean it was that one that was i was the biggest barrier to that the rest of the business realized it quite a few years ago um but i have ethical issues with, <laughs> with, with amazon so my resistance they eventually they wore me down and the uh, commercially it made so much more sense partly because what we're selling is heavy and bulky The cereals are quite bulky The alternative milks are really heavy. So unless you've got the back office set up to do um, shipping and have amazing rates, it's just not viable.
1: Yeah, so I think the learning here is is that if you've started your business in a D2C on a DC model and you've set yourself up in that way from the beginning, that's one thing. But to move a really big machine that's built, you know, 17 years on and that has been built entirely on a on a retail model, well that's going to be much more difficult to do. So let someone else do it and fight your own
0: battles in the battlegrounds that you've chosen to to fight in. Yeah, I think so. I think so. I mean, I, you know, I, yes, absolutely. And I don't actually think anybody in alternative milks is doing D 2 C in a big way. And you're rightly bringing me back to
1: milks here because I always think of you as a cereal brand, but that's just not the case anymore, is it? No, nope, absolutely
0: not. We didn't know it when we launched them, um, which is ten years ago now. But when we launched the alternative milks, we, I mean, what we did was launch stuff. We loved innovating. We loved because it's all about food. We wanted to make new food, so we'd started with the cereals, then. Um, we come across these really delicious Italian crackers, like rice cakes, but thin, crispy, delicious. So we did those. I mean, we just got oat cakes. We found that if you made, you know, delicious Scottish oat cakes, if you used... Oatmeal instead of wheat flour—they're lovely and crispy and don't stick to the roof of your mouth. You know, and then we did bars, and then in two thousand thirteen, um, milks because again, you know, it's all the same thing—it's all dealing with grains and oats, uh, which was in kind of everything we did—muesli and granolas are oat-based, so it was part of the same expertise. It was part of breakfast. It was a really obvious thing to do, um, and that came back to partly came back to what we were talking about earlier in the tastings and the consumer feedback. We were getting I was getting more, not loads, but more people saying, oh, have you got anything other than dairy to taste that with? It wasn't millions, but it was enough. Um And at the same you time, see, you didn't came slide
1: in. over it. You didn't
0: slide over that. You thought to yourself, this means something. Didn't slide over it. No. What's going on here? Yeah, because because they weren't you know, it wasn't you yeah, could see that it wasn't just allergy. It, it was something was shifting. It wasn't at all clear what or how big it would be. And at the same time, somebody said, somebody came into the office unit just talking about the business and said, um, oh, you could do, you could do grain milks. Um, so I'd picked up on it in the tastings. Nick had picked up on it from that. And he then went out and found. And that, because the other thing was, we then looked at what was available in terms of alternative milks. And they, ha- they tasted awful, generally, at the time. Um, the ingredients were really extraordinarily awful, considering it was meant to be a they were there for health they were purely existing for health at that point the ingredients couldn't have been much less healthy um and they looked terrible you know it was it was a category that just it was needs based you know you were assuming that the consumer had to come and buy that stuff and not much effort was going into it on any other level so it turned out to be for us you know the perfect storm was the opposite of a perfect storm it was like golden opportunity because we were able to go in with uh great taste um Really beautifully clean ingredients that you would recognize that you would have in your kitchen at home. And as we talked about before, that went into our brand new packaging, which looked the whole point of it was to look delicious. And that's the one which we had the face, you know, a face and a glass of milk. So it was like drink me. It was literally saying drink me. Um and that more or less overnight actually was the thing that has made the business. And we now sell more, more than 70% of the business is the milks. I think possibly one of our biggest missed opportunities was not realising that sooner. We carried on for so many years as you know, in it still innovating, you know, and going into more categories and doing more stuff because that's what Nick and I love doing. It's food, 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 food. Yeah. Oh, long after. Kept doing it. Kept innovating into new categories. Could not stop <laughs> until eventually. Whereas you should have just doubled, doubled down on the milk. Yeah. Yeah, you know, if, we, if we'd been really properly commercial, that, that's the but yeah, when do you know? Yeah, when do you, when do, you do it? So yeah, well, you know, ideally we probably have started focusing much sooner than we, than we actually did.
1: If you're the smart founder of a scaling brand and you're inspired by what you're learning on this podcast, why not check out our Brand Growth Heroes Accelerator program? Over the past three years, our bespoke framework, tools and coaching has helped over 80 founders of early stage scaling brands make decisions that have supercharged their growth. The results have been phenomenal. Things like first listings in national retailers and airlines, doubling of revenues, new star products or key hires, or even offers from all five dragons on the den. The program offers you a suite of bespoke lessons, tools, one-to-one coaching, group workshops, and access to a growing network of support from smart founders of grocery brands just like you. We love you Fiona Thank and you you've so been much. an incredible mentor to us and your program was wildly helpful. So if anyone is thinking of doing it, we really recommend it and don't think we would be able to get here without having done it. So if you want the framework and tools that will help you make decisions that will take your growth to the next level, go to brandgrowthheroes.com and then click online courses. Then just press register your interest today. Thanks again to Strong Roots, good for you, good for the planet, good made easy. So let's loop back to the earlier part of the conversation. We talked about who do you want to change and what change do you want them to make? So imagine, oh, well, I am a consumer. I'm a mum who buys plant milk, right? And, and I always have plant milk in my fridge. And I have dairy milk in the fridge because, you know, some people in my house want dairy. <clears throat> and I've always been an Alpro buyer purely because Alpro has always been available in high distribution where I'm living. But then I got your plant milks in the post, right? Thanks to the lovely Martha. And now I'm thinking, these are gorgeous. These are really lovely. They're really, they're like the almond one tastes like real almonds. Uh, it doesn't look or feel weak in my tea, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm thinking to myself, ooh, but it's probably really expensive compared to Alpro. It is more
0: expensive than Alpro, but not loads more. Is it just like 20% more? Yes, probably almost exactly 20% more expensive, I think. So, so I'm thinking yeah. I, I probably could afford to
1: swap as a consumer. I could probably afford to swap... But, you know, I don't want to be thinking that it's really more expensive. I want to be knowing more about the benefits. So I'm not thinking about the price. I'm thinking about what I'm, why I'm swapping into it, that it's just a way better almond milk than Alpro, which it is. And because I'm such a heavy spender on on plant milk, I probably go through about five litres a week. I'm thinking, okay, well, where can I get
0: Root Health plant milk? And I can't get it in the co-op right now, which is... Um, no. no, probably not. Certainly not in all co-ops. No. Are you, well, you, you <laughs> I can't do it, Holland Barrett? Yeah, yeah, I, I could do that, but I would have to go into town for that.
1: And I'm just thinking, I suppose what I'm trying to make, the point I'm trying to make here to the listeners is, the question here is, is your distribution running behind the potential household penetration of opportunity of your brand? Because it seems to me that I am one of your target consumers in terms of those people that you want to change I'm here and I am waiting I have tried your product now and I absolutely adore it yet I just can't find it locally and that's what I mean when I say you know ask asking yourselves as, a, as, as those listeners out there their brand owner, you know is your distribution running behind um holding you back in terms of that opportunity that commercial opportunity and without knowing, I mean, I would wager that you guys uh, are ready to be way more widely distributed than, than you
0: are. Would that be fair? Absolutely. And it is such, you know, it's sound, and it sounds so easy, doesn't it? so easy to identify. a bit harder to actually do it, but we are absolutely, you know, that, yeah. And remind me, because I often see your milks in ambient. We're in both. We're in ambient and chilled. Um, in, and it's, uh, as you can imagine, actually, I mean, it's very unusual for supermarkets. This is a much more commercial. So, how do you do it? How do you get into that
1: last bit of the tail end of your distribution? You know how do you really go nationwide
0: in in both the the children and ambient categories? At this point, you're trying to you've got to convince not just your consumers but obviously your customers as well. So you've got to convince the stores. And at the moment in alternative milks, you know the the stores are in a really good position because they have got a lot of brands. Suddenly, well, not suddenly, but over the last few years, you know, it's a great category to be in. Everybody's entered, um, and there's a lot of competition, and there's a lot of confusion. Uh, and it's, uh, you know, the buyers have got to decide the why. How do they choose, and why? And it's in a, it's in a shakedown time. You know, if you look at the last year, you've seen Coke and Innocent exit. Um, you've seen Nestle with Wonder exit. I
1: mean, sorry, um, but like on on what planet? On on what planet? was this nestle
0: wonder bar mistake oh what planet was that ever going to work anyway keep going but you know it's that's how tough the competition is you know these are the reason i've cited those there are some more brands some smaller brands who've who you know exited as well but you know it's tough enough that coke and nestle are not you know with their budgets and their research team, you know nestle's got the biggest research team in the world they're not making it work um so yeah, it's really, really difficult um, and you have to offer something that people want. And I think what we're offering is still, is, for, and actually we've made it hard for ourselves because Root Health is not offering one single thing. We're not promising to make you 10 years younger. We're not promising to, to directly replace milk in the sense that this is not going to taste like milk and we're not promising that it's nutritionally like milk. And I really believe that's the right thing to do because what on earth is the point of creating a milk alternative that is basically milk? Like, that just doesn't make any sense to me at all. What we're making is is something that you you can use like milk, but it is different, and let's celebrate the differences. You know, if it's going to be almond milk, make it taste like almonds, you know, delicious Sicilian almonds. Um, So what our job is to really show the potential of... It's almost like, I mean, I do love what Fever Tree did. You know, if three quarters of your drink is the tonic, make it good. Make it good. And I'm saying the same with whether it's coffee or whether it's cereals. You know, choose something that's really going to add to your cereals, your coffee, your tea, whatever it is you're having it with your smoothie. You know, make it good. Make it, that's taste, that's ingredients, it's everything. And I mean,
1: that's it, isn't it? I'm sure that's your brand growth story to the buyers already. But after the category shakeout settles down and then there's these new pockets of growth happening, maybe your pocket of growth is all around flavour and being a whole food.
0: I hope so. But it's it's not a sexy, exciting story. You know, there's always something new or some new kind of functional thing. But I honestly think that fundamentally it's just getting something that tastes delicious and is really good ingredients that people... Would. I think being a whole food nowadays
1: is a really really exciting uh, and competitive proposition. I actually used your almond milk with with the burker muesli that you sent. This oh, yeah, is what we yeah. did on, on on the weekend. Yeah. In the Sunday Times, there was an article uh, with a recipe for yeah. baked oats, and I hadn't oh, come yeah, across yum. that yep, before. Yep. So I took the burker muesli and the almond milk and I whizzed it up with a banana and an egg and I put it in some muffin pots in the oven for 30 minutes. And what we had, the kids absolutely adored it. For anyone who hasn't tried baked oats before, it's like eating squidgy, but not squidgy, more like -like, cloud-like, mousse-like, cloud-like muffins. I mean, I know that's a crazy uh, explanation. And it's in a pot. So you can kind of stick your spoon into it and spoon up this cloudy yumminess it is divine um but if i hadn't used your nut milk it wouldn't i wouldn't have tasted that beautiful roasted almond nuttiness
0: no and you could change because if you use coconut milk you get a slightly different you know sort of edge to it um actually coconut milk with the burger is particularly nice i think um but you know that that's the fun of it it's like make it without having to do any sort of major rethinking or or anything you can you know you can adapt you can just have more fun with what you're doing um like my older child at the moment is loving uh, iced coffees with the hazelnut milk. It's just such a good combination. Um, but, you know, it's it's just having a bit of fun with it and not treating it as just one, not not just one flavour. You know, it's not milk. You can have loads of different choices. And talk
1: to us about your tiger nut milk because that's just really uh, different and interesting. What
0: What is tiger nut milk? Oh, that was, that was, that was, I think that was one that we just couldn't resist doing. It's actually... It, tiger nut is a weird thing it's a really creamy milk because a tiger nut's actually a tuber like a potato um, it's you know it's it's nothing like a nut but so it makes a really creamy milk um and we just we just couldn't resist basically we still got it it's not in very wide distribution i think because it's not familiar to people and when you see tiger nut you don't know what it's going to taste like whereas in spain you would because horchata which is uh, you know is a traditional drink so people would understand it but in the uk i think it's it's um, it's a, it doesn't, like you were saying earlier about looking at a pack and understand, you know, getting the feeling from it. I think when people see Tiger nut, they've got no idea what that's going to taste like.
1: But it's interesting, isn't it? Because if you were still in the mindset that you used to be in the olden days where you just throw out any innovation, uh, you, wouldn't it be lovely to have a, a
0: ready to drink horchata for the insort side door of the fridge? It would. I would love to do that. Oh, God, I'd love to do some ready mixes. We have done ready mixes, actually, but they don't sell either. A coffee one, like for your fridge door, you know, could be iced hushata, or maybe I'm saying that wrong,
1: uh, or you could heat it up. I mean, you know, that way your tiger nut milk is way more
0: accessible to people's understanding of how to yeah. use it yes. during the day. Yes. Absolutely, absolutely. And I wouldn't rule that out. You know, that's not something that we would say we wouldn't do. I think, you know, ready mixes is definitely something that's worth, you know, worth looking at. So this has gone off in all sorts of ways I didn't imagine
1: it was going to. And that's brilliant because it's really fun to talk to you. But one of the things I wanted to talk about was people, because as well as marketing and packaging and product, people and getting that right has really been a pillar of your business and your business growth. Um, And I want to talk about how you've gone about getting it right. And it's not always easy to get it right, as you've so said to me in, in our chats before this. But talk to me about people, how important they've been for you and how you've managed uh, the people that you have um, recruited and brought into the business and how that changes over time.
0: Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, 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 the people are the business. So, you know, people is probably the most important thing. You know, beyond what you actually your idea and what your, your vision and what you're trying to do and it's the hardest thing because people you know we're not easy we're not straightforward so our first sort of serious hire was um uh at the time an accountant because that was neither neither nick nor i gets any joy from numbers uh and we realized that that wasn't really going to fly uh, for very long, um, also, or just gonna, we're just going to we're going make a terrible job of it. Um, so we hired Jonathan um, straight out of PwC. Actually, hired him. He was in the middle of a ski season when we contacted him, and uh, Nick contacted him. Uh, so he came back from his you know, post-graduating PwC ski season and joined us as a fresh grad, um, qualified accountant, and he is now our CFO and CEO and our you know longest-standing employee so yeah first extremely good hire um, and he's kept us you know jonathan kept us going through 2008 w- without somebody all over what was going on in terms of the numbers and you know telling me what to do what not to do what, mostly what not to do um you know we wouldn't be here yeah cash flow and yeah absolutely just cash flow i mean yes it was fundamental for about two or three years fundamental in an in, Penny by penny, I mean it was absolutely on the line. Cash, just watching every. He stretched everybody, you know, all playing all the games, anything to get us through those three years, and we made it through. That's amazing.
1: So, so besides Jonathan, then putting him to one side, you know that bit of the growth curve. For all of a sudden, you have to employ lots of people, and it feels a bit scary, and you're not quite sure what role you should recruit for next, Um, and you have to employ two or three or four people within
0: eighteen months for the first time. What was that bit like? you know, actually, for us, that wasn't necessarily the tricky bit. I think what was tricky for us was, and so when we were tiny, 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 what worked really well was people who were more or less entrepreneurial themselves. Because I'm not a micromanager. Nick is not a micromanager. What we really wanted to do was give someone something and let them run with it. Um, and so... It was really bright grads. Really bright grads worked brilliantly, and what was tricky was when it got to the point when people needed to be trained, which meant they needed to have been in a bigger business, basically. And then we, what we found, in, I found particularly hard, was knowing when somebody was going to make that transition to a small business to a startup, well, and when it was just not going to work at all. And I I think it is difficult. I think it's difficult if you're the person making that transition because you don't know what, you don't really know what it's like. You don't really understand the differences until you're there. And my not having been on the other side, I wasn't really in a great position to understand what might go wrong. Um, And it did a few times, you know, people just found it. I think they felt uh, very exposed in a sense, Because not only do you not have all the support of a larger business, um, but you've probably also got a lot less direction. Um, There's a lot less checking up. But then you are absolutely responsible for everything that's sort of in your area. And and even things like promotion, there's there's no chart you know, what do you, what do you want to be promoted to? And what are you going to do to justify that? There's no pass, you know, it's, it's totally up to you to sort of, which suits some people brilliantly. And for other people, it's just not the way they work. But
1: your intention at that time was to bring in new skills that you thought the business needed at that time, right, with these new people. So where do you sit with that right now? I mean, how do you reconcile making
0: those choices? Well, it's much easier now, because but now that we've got, now that we've I've got some people in the business who have made that transition. They're in a much better position to understand, to to know what it takes to be on both sides. So they because they've done it, so they know. Um, it, I mean, the ideal hire is someone who has done both, who's got the training and has experienced a small business. Then you kind of know that they're 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 going to be fine. Um, and our interview process is probably rather more uh, organized and effective than it used to be. Um, it was so gut feel before I mean we were hiring you know do you hire the person or do you hire the skills I mean for a long time we were 100% hiring a person and now you know it obviously it's fit or skills isn't it there is fit now is is still a non-negotiable but skills is is just so much higher um, it, I think fundamentally once you've made that leap and you've got some people in the business who've done it it's a thousand times easier not still it still, still goes wrong but
1: you know you, you it's much less likely. Yeah. So what is next for Root Health? You guys are at 20
0: million now. How are you going to get the next 20 million? Where is that going to come from? It's, that is a really good question. I think it goes back to what you were saying earlier. I think, you know, we, we believe that we've got, you know, particularly the alternative milks. We, think, we still think they're market leading, you know, in terms of flavour, in terms of ingredients. Um, and we think there should be a greater distribution. And that is the big win, is just make them more available. I mean, what you're, you know, Compared to where we were, they're well distributed, but they're nowhere near as well distributed as they should be. So I think that is the obvious, really obvious next thing to do.
1: Yeah, that's what I'm looking forward to: going down to the end of my road to my little co-op and being able to pick up some of your fabulous Rude Health milks, not only in the ambiental but also in the chiller. There's one brand on shelf in the chiller actually that's really knowing me, annoying me at the moment in that category, uh, which is the branded, rebranded. Reworked packaging of Plenish. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Um, so I'm sorry if anyone listening has worked on that, but I just loved the original pa- pla- packaging. And the new Plenish packaging just looks like something out of the 2000s, like kind of 19, or 1980s or 2000s America. And I just can't understand how it got approval. But you know,
0: it's working. It's working for them. I was going to ask you. I mean, it, yeah. is it? It's yeah, working. Um it is. Um, it's very interesting. And I think the reason, I think the reason that it's working is the old packaging, as you've said, was really appealing to a relatively small group of people. Because I think it said pure and it said health and it said functional. And I don't think enough people wanted that. And I think what they've done is make it look more like food. And I think that's, it's a broad, I think, maybe wrong, but it's working. Something's working. So they're sticking photographs of the nuts more prominently on the front of pack, or what have they actually done? They've changed; the color. it's got colour in it now. They were very white before. They were quite. I mean, they were. It, it was very true to to what they do. I mean, I, I'm. Yeah, I'm okay. I'm looking at it now online. Uh, they've
1: just got like a huge, big bowl of nuts, like a, just a huge, big bowl
0: of nuts on the front. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I don't know. It just doesn't appeal to me. Maybe you're not the target consumer. Yeah. I wonder
1: what it does say about the target consumer in that category, kind of the mass market consumer in that category. What do they want? Or we should be really talking about shopper in this case, shouldn't we? But what does the, tar- what does the mass market shopper in the plant milks category want then?
0: And, as well, and that's, getting, that's getting more interesting because it, that, that has moved in the last 10 years. Because 10 years ago, you know, when we launched, so we launched with oats, brown rice and almond. And at the time, the category was soya rice and very little else um and as we launched um we actually launched for some reason i can't remember why it had to be 40 40 20 proportionally and we did 40 40 brown rice 20 almond and i think in between sort of deciding that was what we were going to do and it hitting the shelf gwyneth paltrow published her almond drink piece on goop 2013 um and our second lorry was almond 100 almond um why did I start with that? Uh, So yes, so at that time, it was very much the, well, 10 years ago, it was when Instagram launched. And it was when suddenly healthy became cool, which is the first time that's ever happened in the UK. Health suddenly, all hashtag get the glow, yoga, babes, you know, the whole thing shifted. And instead of having, you know, in my sort of youth, you know, a fridge would typically have some lemons and limes and uh, some freezer would have sliced bread and vodka you know suddenly your fridge would have green smoothies you know and almond milk uh you know it was completely different it was all about body beautiful but from from a young and cool perspective you know looking good perspective and that so that early consumer was you know was young was very trendy was very you know sort of very health look at me beautiful based um and then it's moved since then and it is now uh there's 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 still health enormously, but there's also environment, um, and there's it, it's it's a much 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 broader consumer. It's people who are also consuming dairy. Um, it, there's a million different reasons that people are going to it and looking for different things. So it's I think there's more room to have different players in the category, which is fun, um, and it's still growing. There's still people you know trying and coming to it all the time. It's fun. It's a fun category. Well, look. I'm really conscious of the fact that we're coming
1: up to almost a full hour of chatting, and I'm not sorry in the least because I really enjoyed this, and it's been brilliant to to chat to you and to get to know your journey. And I love your brand, and I love your products. So thank you, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to take taste fabulous baked oats with the kids this weekend. Because I wouldn't have done it had I not had such lovely products that I kind of wanted to showcase. It just felt wrong to like stick them in my tea. I wanted to do something special, and it was great to be able to do that. So thank you so much. Yeah, it's a really good breakfast actually
0: baked it's delicious yeah good choice and one
1: for the side of pack maybe
0: (laughs) yeah yep good call
1: good shout (laughs) thank you so much Camilla it's been absolutely wonderful and hopefully we will have you back on in the future
0: when you get to that 40 million mark oh super thank you Fiona it was a, a pleasure absolute pleasure
1: thanks to the team at Strong Roots for their continued support this season good for you good for the planet good made easy